Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Censored, a podcast about historical smut. I'm Aoife Vritnach, a historian putting the sex back into the story of 20th century Ireland. In a way, the podcast is a revenge on the censors. They tried to ban all the sex, but I'm pointing out where you can find it. The books might be old, but the ideas are as dangerous as ever. I'm on Twitter at CensoredPod, and you can also support the show by subscribing, rating and reviewing. I also have a Patreon, and I'd like to thank my latest patron, Anna Maria Crow Stefano. All patrons get full-length guest interviews and show notes, so check it out. Now, if you paid very close attention to the end of the last episode, you'll remember that I promised a lesbian classic, The Well of Loneliness. But I've changed the running order, and the book this time is Kate O'Brien's The Land of Spices from 1941. It's set in a private convent boarding school where Irish Catholic upper middle class girls are taught by nuns from a French order. The two central characters are Anna Murphy, a child sent to school very young because her home life is difficult. Her father is an alcoholic, her mother is considering a divorce and they are shabby genteel rather than rich. In charge of the school is Reverend Mother Marie Alain, a woman whose English parents raised her in Belgium. The interior lives of these two characters unfold as the book progresses. It's really hard to summarise the central themes because this book has a lot of layers. It's a coming-of-age novel about a young child, but it's also a novel of nostalgia and ageing from an adult point of view. Sex and the body are quite peripheral, though that is apparently what got it banned. The Land of Spices is famous as a banned book, partly because one of the censors told us what he disliked about it. In 1942, William McGuinness told the Shannad that the book was all about sodomy. Spoiler for the whole episode, it's not. At least, I think McGuinness was exaggerating his objections to one line so that he wouldn't have to articulate all the other ways the book made him uncomfortable. O'Brien wrote a complex, subtle text that would have upset men like McGuinness for lots of reasons. Also, the censors were looking out for her work. Her earlier novel, Mary Lavelle, had been banned. 
that was also banned in Spain. So fair play to Kate O'Brien, she had a talent for upsetting reactionary Catholics. This week, I've roped in a guest to talk about the book with me. Dr. Matthew Reznucek teaches at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. He has published widely on Irish women writers, including Kate O'Brien, Maria Edgeworth and Sidney Owenson. Hi, Matthew. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Great to be here, Aoife. This is such an exciting book for me. It's new to me because I have foolishly left it on the shelf for years, but I am so thrilled to read it now. And one of the things that I like to do at the beginning of the podcast is talk about the food and drink in the book and whether we can choose a suitable accompaniment. For me, it has to be tea because it's a convent and they have tea in the parlour. But there's much more than that in the book, I think. There's a lot of food because the children are eating together and there's French food and Irish food. What do you think? Is tea in the parlour the appropriate accompaniment? I would say probably tea and then a good cook of van or some French stew or what my favorite is the nun who asks for like bacon and she gets it, but she says that it's Frenchified. So it has to be like tea. So a basic Irish tea with some sort of slightly snotty French food. There is a wonderful cook described who is in exile from her European homeland and will probably die in rural Ireland and produces this beautiful classic French cuisine and no one likes it. It just can you imagine cooking like such wonderful food that we would now recognize sort of high cuisine and just being totally snuffed at like <laughs> I just want my chips. Or in this case bacon, cabbage and potatoes. <laughs> but also I think about there's there's so much like you mentioned of sort of like caramels and sweets marshmallows there's a really beautiful scene where anna and her younger brother are eating marshmallows the food is so diverse i hadn't noticed it until you asked the question but there's just like it is kind of all over the place it's interesting because some books feature no food at all but this one because of the communal dining there's one moment i think where anna's peeling an apple which is very resonant the long tables and there's a lot there i think about food and eating and community and I like to start with the silly question, really, because it is a bit of a reductive question, is why was it banned? And this is one of the very few books where a censor stood up in public and told us exactly why they banned it. And it's one line in which the embrace of love is taken to stand for homosexual sex. But I don't really think that one line is a good enough explanation, because first of all, it's in the middle of the book. And I don't believe they read a lot of these books. But I think also that there's so much in there that would be objectionable, I think, to close-minded Victorian almost censors. What do you think? Do you think it's that line or are they using it as an excuse? I totally agree with you. I think it's absolutely an excuse, in part because you almost could pass over that one line. To me, I think the, the reason or the objection that the censor board would find it was was such a strident critique of sort of revival culture so anna the the novel's protagonist graduates from school and heads to ucd in 1916 and the entirety of the novel shows this tension between 
sort of a Gaelic league bishop and this English nun who who views herself as part of a cosmopolitan global order of of sisters who are rooted in Belgium and France um, and just kind of looks not down her nose at, but takes the big picture against the sort of insularity of Irish nationalism and and makes the the priests and the nun, especially the nun from Tyrone, all seem very sort of um, picayune and and very parochial. Um, there there's so much about the debate over the role of the Irish language and the development of a national education versus a Christian education, an education that educates the the young women for the world rather than for the nation. And I think that tension is really powerful and it it comes kind of, I think we have to put the Land of Spices in the context for O'Brien's career, where this is her second band novel, but it's essentially the third novel that really creates a critique of the insularity of Ireland. Mary Lavelle, then Pray for the Wanderer, and then The Land of Spices. Although there are elements of it in her first book, the Hawthorne winning pri- uh, prize-winning novel, Without My Cloak, Ireland is always seen as very small and threatening to the protagonists of her novels. So I think I think there's a lot in it that that clearly sort of stands outside of and against De Valera's vision of Ireland, especially in the early years of the state. So I didn't I hadn't thought about when it was actually set, I suppose. I didn't consciously register that it's pre-independence. So by publishing this in the 40s, she is she is saying that the roots that they all celebrate are fundamentally problematic. Yes. And and in that way, it kind of reminds me of um, Sean O'Casey's Dublin trilogy, especially The Plough and the Stars, where he's staging the Easter Rising and, and kind of you get this dramatic tension between the supposedly grandiose sphere of history contrasted with the, the real tragedy of the personal. And so that in The Land of Spices, you get these sort of tensions between the role, the self-determination of the individual, which comes against, is weighted against the pressures of the independent state. All that culture and nationalism is a big part of the book. There's this whole tension between the French language and the Irish language as objects of study and objects of use within the school, because, of course, they all speak English. But the study of another language, I think she really politicizes that and says, why are you studying Irish or why would you like to study French? And it's it's kind of a lamentation for the death of the French influence over Irish culture, which is very 18th century, to be honest, isn't it? It is, yeah. And it's also, I think, 18th century in in that um, there's also a huge representation of, of romantic German. Yes, there is, isn't there, in the play scene? Yeah, the play where they, they perform um, Friedrich Schiller's uh, Wallerstein's Tod. But even on the first page, there's this sort of 
the recurring German word schwärmerei, or um, like feelings of sentiment, sort of of frivolous attachment. And I don't think O'Brien's using it just because the Germans have have one word, whereas the English have eight. But O'Brien's clearly trying to make this sort of transnational language, or sorry, this transnational linguistic register in contrast to the singularity of the Irish language. She's trying she's trying to put Irish on the board with all these other competing languages instead of elevating it to some supreme position. I suppose she's trying to say it is a language. It is not it is not a political object, although it comes with a lot of baggage, of course. She is conscious of the baggage that is contained in languages and modes of expression as well. I mean, that whole atmosphere of the convent and the school, it's so beautifully done. It's so complete, so much attention to detail and the way the people move in the space. I just think it's an amazing achievement. It is. Um, I was I was looking at um, Aver Walsh's biography of Kate O'Brien earlier and reviews of The Land of Spices compared to John Galsworthy, Elizabeth Gaskell, um, and one review says it lists Galsworthy, Gaskell, and a few other of the, the high Victorian realists and says, and O'Brien is better. And, you know, so I, I teach a lot of Elizabeth Gaskell and I, I really love Gaskell's work. But I think what O'Brien does is, is borrow the psychological parts of modernism with the Victorian realism. So you get just this beautiful interiority and and O'Brien really, I think, catches the sort of the tragedy of trying to struggle through life. She sort of recognizes that everyone is hurt or is hurting in some way, um, often by everyday cruelties. Um, the struggle is both beautiful but painful and real and damaging, but just so very much a part of our lives that it can't be ignored or even romanticized. Aver Walsh again kind of calls this her O'Brien's most autobiographical novel. And the question is sort of who which character most represents O'Brien? Clearly parts of it are Anna, the young protagonist, who goes off to study at, at UCD, just as O'Brien did in 1916. But also large parts of it seem like she is the novelist is also embodied in, in the Reverend Mother, Helen Archer. There's also suggestions that her husband gave the model for the Reverend Mother's father, the former Oxford professor who relocates to the continent under mysterious conditions. And we find out later is implicated in the censored phrase she saw her father and Etienne in the embrace of love. And so there's a whole bunch of the autobiography that, that can be read into this novel, um, including, I think, the Murphy family, the, the young girl's family, their increasing cash-strapped experience. So they become more and more dependent upon Anna's grandmother, maternal grandmother, for financial support. And that's in large part due to drink, but also just struggling finances in in the early 20th century in Ireland. There is that sense of the the middle class being squeezed and in this case they're a middle class who are kind of almost landed gentry. They're 
on the fringes of posh. They have a big farm, but they're not quite farmers either. They're that strange, amorphous set of people that work very well in a social context, but are very hard to put a big label on for academic purposes, you know? Yes. And and O'Brien, I think this is one of the things where she is often overlooked in, in Irish criticism, in part because she is writing about that upper middle class Catholic identity, usually in in and around Limerick, which she renames as Melick very um, surreptitiously, clearly trying to hide the uh, the identity of the town. She is very interested in that that middle class, upper middle class Catholic identity, which again is is intriguing when you think about the role of cultural nationalism and the celebration of the peasant as being the folk, right? Like clearly connected to the national identity. Well, where do these upper class Catholics sit? The ones who are actually attending the Abbey, not seeing themselves on stage. Yes. And although the folk is elevated to this paragon of Irishness, I mean, in reality, the people in the Doyle and the Senate were more likely to be of the status of Anna and the Murphys than to be, you know, bog men from a one-roomed cottage at the side of the road. (laughs) But the suppression of the social reality is essential for the dream and the illusion of Gaelic perfectionists or whatever that is. Well, and I wonder if if that helps us understand why she has been overlooked, not just in terms of, of being banned, but also... Like, she's not giving us the narrative that we expect, you know, the narrative that sort of confirms the the Gaelic revival, cultural nationalist narrative of a nation of peasants, but instead sort of a, a nation of middle class, upper middle class professionals in a lot of extent. Um, Anna, the, at the end of the novel, the tension is that she wants to go to university, but her grandmother thinks education for women is a waste of time and plans to place her in a bank, kind of a regional bank. And it just, that is not the beginnings of the nation that we are taught. I really do want to talk about the bishop and his role in the convent and the priests as well. But I think the bishop was really interesting because We are, of course, talking about bishops and convents and nuns because of the mother and baby home thing. And there is a tendency, I think we're a bit lazy, we just say the church and we're covering it all. They're all the same. But this book is really paying attention to the conflict within people who are ordained or in orders and that there's a lot of power struggle going on. I just think that was so interesting and must have offended the censors. Oh, absolutely. Especially the bishop is from the beginning, we know is in conflict with the Reverend Mother, which becomes fraught with national questions because the Reverend Mother is English, but comes from Belgium. And the bishop, the, the narrator repeats several times that the bishop doesn't like orders who are beyond his control. So there's a real sense of authoritarianism associated with this particular bishop. Uh, that's exacerbated by his his allegiance to what's repeatedly called the national question and national education. He certainly doesn't like his power threatened in any way. 
And yet the Reverend Mother is consistently able to kind of maneuver in and around his power and his authority to achieve her own ends and to sort of stand apart from this increasing consolidation between church and state. I think he completely underestimates her and nuns in general, but that is how she is able to manipulate him. If he had any appreciation that she was able to do anything, it wouldn't have happened. And she says several times that um, her Englishness allows her to sort of act as though she doesn't understand that she's being insulted or she doesn't understand the sarcasm that's being used. And so it kind of calls the question and forces this sort of what are you on about framework where where she uses that sort of outsider status to kind of reveal the the underlying politics of of these encounters. She does trick him into some awful mansplaining as well. I mean, he comes across as such a bore. Oh, he just like he is such he is such a stereotypical bishop who just seems so consumed with his own authority. And and that's sort of replicated. Anna's grandmother has a brother who is a priest in the bishop's um, diocese and has this clear snobbishness about hoping that he moves up to become a you know a bishop or or to work for the bishop. There's such a sense of social climbing in and around the church where where the bishop functions not just as this kind of ecclesiastical authority but a clear sort of social figure that makes it like in some ways much more mean or or at least crass. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, he's very worldly. He doesn't seem like a man of God, more like a politician or a senior manager. Which is shocking considering that uh, 
the priests and bishops are working alongside the politicians to ban this book. <laughs> For all that it's about religion, I mean, very few of the characters are portrayed as spiritual, actually. It's really an anatomy of human behavior in the confines of this structure that they've commissioned themselves to, isn't it? I mean, it's only the simple ones are like religious in any real way. Yeah. And and I feel like that has to be a part of the, what led to the banning, the Reverend mother, especially sort of enters the, the convent as a way to escape her father's, to escape dealing with her father's hetero or homosexuality, but also as a way to punish her father. So religion is used as this kind of punitive space um, or indeed a flight from dealing with the world. The convent's this place outside. Anna tries to stay at the convent over a Christmas so she doesn't have to go home to deal with her family. It's a refuge from these, these worldly places, and yet it's utterly a part of the world too shaped by global politics and national politics and petty personal politics. The most horrific scene in the novel, one of the most horrific scenes in the novel, is when one of the the nuns punishes Anna by removing points from a French exam so that she's not able to go on um, a day off, a school holiday. And it's just out of pure vindictiveness and pettiness and yeah, these these nuns largely lack what you would recognize as um, vocations, except like you say, like it's the old cook, it's the lay sisters who often have that sense of vocation. It's also at the very beginning, I think, all of that around the intense schoolgirl passions around a professing novice, I think that completely undermines the idea that this is a serious religious endeavor. You know, everyone's swooning because the prettiest girl in her year became a nun. And it's really, it's very satirical. It's quite mean about vocations. Yes. And and I think that's really important just because I think it sets up the reality of the church, Right. That, that it became a social and economic space. Um, and this isn't new to 20th century Ireland, right? You know, it's, it happened 19th, 18th century, you know, hundreds, thousands of years. But there's almost like an exacerbation of the pettiness, the smaller the focus gets, you know, the more rural and uh, autocratic the bishop the the greater power he attempted to exert and and for O'Brien like all of these petty politics seem to sit in opposition to the grander more cosmopolitan concerns that the order is also contending with there is a sense that because the reverend mother has lived abroad in many houses and you get kind of these snapshots of these other places and her personal journey she seems to be connected to something so much bigger, although there's a lot of discussion about whether she even thinks her vocation is real. She is still somehow elevated in a way that the others are, you know, they're, I think O'Brien is 
understands that people are human. And she's not saying, you know, you have to be a saint. But she is saying, you know, how you're human in this context, how you're expressing that. And I thought the contrast between the Reverend Mother and the Bishop is so extreme. Yes. And part, the Reverend Mother seems more strategic. She's, she's more, she is better at politics because she is able to use, exactly as you said, the bishop's underestimation of her own acuity or her own understanding of her situation to, to advance her own ends. But part of that, I think, as you're, as you're pointing out, is also her just worldly experience. The novel lists kind of extraordinarily, she's been in Krakow and Rouen and um, Brussels and Vienna. Um, she's, this is one of, which is shocking for Kate O'Brien, one of the most international novels she writes because all her novels deal with this international element. And just, she is so interested in these global networks that it's really, it makes Ireland seem very small. That has to be part of why we think about O'Brien being banned, where her work does not engage in sort of the hagiographic reverence for this new emerging state. And instead, it's rather, no, we sit alongside other nations, we dialogue with and move between other nations. Of course, in 1942, when this was written, uh, Ireland was attempting to exempt itself from belonging to other nations. And so perhaps it's also this kind of critique of about Ireland's sense of exceptionalism and its refusal to participate in this grander global question. This book seems so modern in so many ways, and yet at the same time you can understand why people think it seems older or sort of out of fashion when it's set alongside the more experimental modernist narratives of Beckett or Bowen and Joyce. And yet, I mean, sitting in the age of, of Brexit and Trump and coronavirus, every critique that, that O'Brien levels remains relevant that nationalism is too small-minded to contend with global catastrophes. It interests me that she has taken the Catholic Church as her <laughs> vehicle of critique. It's like a bit of a Trojan horse, isn't it, from an Irish perspective? Because Catholic Church, of course, it's the universal Catholic Church, naturally. But it looks like Irish people in this novel do not see it as a universal Catholic Church. They see it as the Irish Catholic Church. And that's it. It's a really parochial church. And, and that's part of, I think, the debate around the Irish language and the role that Irish language should play in the education. The bishop at several points insists on educating the girls for the nation. And several characters complain that this, this um, school seems to educate Irish girls for English uh, military officers. And... The, non, the Reverend Mother complains that, well, it matters more that they're educated in a Christian fashion, that they might improve those English military officers. And, and it is this sort of reminder that 
what matters more to us, our Catholicism or our Irishness? And for O'Brien, it is decidedly Catholicism, which is never unproblematic for her. It's always deeply, it's always deeply problematic for, for Kate O'Brien, but it's less binding, I think, than nationality. Less, certainly less parochial than nationality. One of the things that is interesting about it in the sense of making it feel very modern is there is that understanding of the creepy old man who follows children around and is really indescribably creepy. And I just thought that was, I mean, menace towards children in that way isn't a huge feature of literature at this time. I mean, now it's like every single book has to have some reference. It's a major plot point in every detective novel at the moment. But it's quite marginal in most texts at this time. And I just thought that was so sinister at that moment when they're on their beautiful holiday by the sea and everything's wonderful and idyllic. And there's this awful figure. Yeah. And and interestingly, right, I noticed that. He, so he's associated. He's called the judge and he's associated with English imperialism in India. And then returns to Ireland, and and in addition to the the sense of pedophilia, there's there's also this kind of weird reminder that Ireland was was part of an imperial enterprise, and there's there's this kind of grossness that that emerges out of the sense of of implication, and and again. I mean, not to draw too too close a parallel to something like the Ryan Report or the Mother and Baby Home Report, but there's you get the sense that everyone knows he's creepy and inappropriate, but no one says anything. And and he's set kind of as a bookend to the other outsider, the English suffragette, who was imprisoned uh, in in England for for her campaign to secure the vote for women who gives again she's kind of emphasized both in terms of her of her protestantism and her nationality and as as a militant feminist so yeah those those two outsiders kind of emerge at the same time on holiday and you don't quite know what to do with them yeah it's i know you say it's not experimental but sometimes by the end I kind of felt that once the convent setting was left, that it became a much more fluid narrative, mm. that it wasn't as obvious where it was going or how it was going to end. Um, just by changing the scene, she really shook it up. Yeah. And also, I think even once she returned to the convent, I was really struck when Anna is talking to the Reverend Mother about um, her night terrors and the dreams she has about seeing her dead brother. Like that, that felt very modernist in a lot of ways. Kind of the, the movement into a dream sequence was really disruptive, but also fit perfectly into the narrative itself. Like none of the narrative feels disjointed. It all moves very seamlessly, but it does go from a kind of enclosed space outward and then back and then back out. Yeah, it's 
I mean, the summary of the plot is very simple, you know, if you were to write it. But the way that it is put together and all of the the layers and so elegantly done. I mean, you like you say, there are no joins. You don't ever feel like, oh, why? What? It's all, if you buy into it, you are totally sucked in. It's a real immersive experience, actually. It seems to borrow, I mean, so clearly it borrows from other school age, coming of age novels, Jane Eyre and, and, and that like, but it feels maybe because of the dual focus on the Reverend Mother and on Anna, it feels so much less focused on youth and childhood and much more on on the kind of the broader sense of, of human development and human experience. Like neither psych, psyche seems shortchanged or given short shrift. They're both fully developed and fully believable. Um, yes. Like you, you really grieve with both of them. It's remarkable. I just, I just can't get over how good it is. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I'll be over it ever, really. <laughs> and more annoyingly, because there is a tendency when things get labeled classic, you know, you just put them on the back burner and you will read it at some point. So inevitably, you don't get to read loads of classic books. And this is definitely one that I should have read a long time ago. Well, but so it's also really interesting because of that dual focus. I don't know that it matters when you read it. You can read it at, at an earlier stage, certainly like I did when I was in Limerick and identify very much with Anna and that longing for an unfenced freedom, the recognition that freedom is a precious thing closely guarded. But equally, you can read it later and come to identify very much with the Reverend Mother and that sense of, of navigating, of having navigated life's choices, not always in wonderful ways, but in ways that have brought you to where you are, where you can do good for other people. So we'll finish up then with censorship bingo, and we'll see how high Kate O'Brien and the Land of Spices scores I'm not optimistic. What do you think, Matthew? You're expecting a low score? I am, yes. And as usual, the first one is breasts. Well, women writers are a lot less interested in boobs, I've noticed, and I don't think there are any in this at all. Nope. Bestiality, God, no. <laughs> Sex work, also no. Nope. Definitely not. It's a nice, respectable private school. Racism. Well, there isn't racism, but there is an awful lot about nationalism and the sort of prejudice and stereotypes it gives rise to. And there's there's a lot of anti-German sentiment. Um, the the drunk guy every evening in Dune Point comes and disrupts this band uh, when they play De Lorelei. Well, that's true. Yeah, I mean that's that could either be terrible or funny depending on how you experience it, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I wonder, could we take it for that? Racism seems like the wrong word, but at the same time, sometimes nationalism and racism, it's kind of hard to tell them apart. How about prejudice, maybe? You know, I think we could take that because it is a really important strand throughout. That moment on the bandstand with those poor unfortunate men who get harassed just because they happen to be German and playing music in public. Yeah, I think we could take that. That's one. Drugs, God, no, certainly not. Politics. Well, yes, with bells on, actually. Not many books tick politics. All over the shop. 
Yeah. Swearing. No, it's very genteel. Infidelity. I don't know if there was infidelity. Was there? I don't think so. The parents are quite in the background. But I don't think there's even the drunken father isn't portrayed as playing away so much as useless. No, wait, sorry, there is. There's an English governess who's sent away, which is why the boys have to be sent to school. Oh, you're right. Yes. So he's a bit of a sex pest. Yeah, we can take that. So crime. I don't think there's any crime, is there? No. Genitalia, definitely not. Abortion, no way. Orgies, <laughs> no. I mean, no. <laughs> Sexual assault. No, there isn't. But that judge encounter is very predatory. I mean, he just touches her arm, but there's a real sense of something very wrong yeah. with that. Yeah, I can't take it really, but I feel like I should, just in order to encompass that moment. And then extramarital pregnancy. No, nothing that scandalous no. is there. No. Uh, masturbation, no way. Sex toys, God, no. Feminism, well, yes, because of the suffragette. Yes. Yes. She is a very interesting character, that she's chosen by Anna to be so important. And Charlie. And Charlie, indeed, even the young boy is like, yeah, she's sound. I like her. Yeah, that's that's a big vote for feminism there <laughs> in the text and in the bingo. Next up, divorce. Well, yes, divorce is simmering away with Anna's parents and her school friend's parents as well. Mm -hmm. Contraception. No, nothing like that. Menstruation. Similarly, no way. Blasphemy. I really should have written heresy in this box, I think, because blasphemy is the wrong, <laughs> it's the wrong term. I'm inclined to say that they would have found it offensive to the idea of the Catholic Church. Especially, like you said, the representation of vocations and the suggestion that the vocation was a, a way to escape emotional stress. Yes, that it's not about a calling, but a running away. Mm -hmm. It's certainly true the censors really were uncomfortable with questioning clerics and nuns and making them human. Mm. So I think we could take that one to kind of encompass that offences against Catholicism. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's a very broad term. You see, blasphemy is too narrow. And the next one is oral sex. Definitely not. Graphic violence. No way. And finally, queer content. Well, yes, it is woven throughout the narrative with the father and his carry on. Yes. Seven out of 25 is not bad. I was expecting about five. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's still not quite passing. It's not rude <laughs> in any way, shape or form. And it's not about sex in any realistic fashion. In fact, it's not really about... Some, no some novels are all about implicit sex, but this isn't even about sex, actually. No. This is all about the life of the mind and emotions. Exactly. Rather than the body. How offensive. Clearly. <laughs> Uh, the censors, they were just mental. Oh my god. And the worst part is, this is the early 40s, this is banned, they got worse. Thank you so much, Matthew, for allowing me to fangirl about, you know, my newfound obsession, Kate O'Brien, and for shedding all that light on her complicated relationship with Ireland. Thank you so much, it was an absolute pleasure. Next week, I faithfully promise I will talk about the Well of Loneliness. 
It's a book with a fascinating censorship history in the UK and the US. Ireland wasn't the only country banning books, though we were the best little country in the world at censorship. Till next time, keep your hands squeaky clean and your minds absolutely filthy. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.